0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. You can find it on page 1001 in the Pew Bibles. Have you ever noticed that we have this this real tendency to drift away from things, things that were, were so central and key in our lives, things that we were once so close to are now so far away that they've almost become strangers to us, right? I mean, who, who didn't have a best friend growing up that you were just like super close to almost inseparable you know that that you dressed alike and you finished one another's sentences and and did all of this stuff together, but now here it is decades later, and you're not even exactly sure where they live or or maybe you had family members that you were close to that you saw weekly or daily and now you're spread across the country and it's hard to get back. It's hard to experience the nearness and to be there with them. Things you were once so passionate about. You know, they're just like, man, that's what my life is about. Maybe it's things like art or, or music or sports or, or maybe it's even your career. Now they just seem distant and lifeless. I mean, growing up, like, I, I played every sport I could possibly play right? My summers were defined by two things and two things only, riding my bike and playing ball. That's literally all I did from sunup to sundown. But now, you know, I I coach baseball and I occasionally watch sports on TV and I've got this fancy dust collector in my garage that's in the shape of a bicycle, but that's really about it. I mean, these things that really once defined our lives that just were so central, so key are now just strangers to us. But you know, it doesn't take very long for us to drift away, does it? I mean, just think about just our thought life, right? One moment, we're just, we're engrossed in this deep and meaningful thought. We're chewing on it. We're wrestling with it. It's like, man, this is awesome, you know? And then a second later, we've gone down so many rabbit trails that we've all but forgotten what we were just thinking about. Or you're driving in your car, and your jam comes on, right? Or, or your kids start fighting in the back. Or, or maybe you're looking out the passenger window, or maybe your eyes are just getting heavy, and the next thing you know, you're jerking the wheel to pull the car off of the rumble strips. Or maybe you're just out there floating. You know, you're in a raft or a boat, out there on the water, you know, and just enjoying the beautiful day. You look back, and you're like a mile from shore. You have no idea how you got there. It really doesn't take that long. And let's face it, guys. We love the idea of floating. Can we just be honest and say, man, I really wish that I could just float through life like it would just go really well. You know, just kind of, I could coast, I could take it easy, I could drift through life with as little effort, as little struggle, as little conflict, as little unpleasantries as possible. And then we're, we're somewhat surprised when it doesn't work out the way that we thought it would, that we're not where we thought that we should be not where we hope to be, as if this life were, were somehow like a lake or a pond, you know, that as long as you stayed on your raft, you couldn't drift too far away, and, it, and you could find your way back, you wouldn't get lost. But in reality, life is not like that. Life is like a river. And I don't mean like a shallow, lazy river, you know, like at the water park where you just kind of work your way back to the beginning and you know, if you happen to get off course, you just hop off and drag your raft back to the nearest exit. But life is like a river with deep, strong currents, with, with whirlpools and, and rapids and, and obstacles. There are forks that can lead you off into the wrong direction, and the mouth opens up into this vast ocean of, of waves and storms and dangerous sea creatures and deprivation. Now, there are good times along the way. There are times where it's like the scenery is beautiful, the water's calm, something to take delight in, but we're not meant to drift down that river. We're meant to navigate up it, to make our course towards its source. Still enjoying all of the scenic views and the calm waters along the way. Still delighting in the task that is before us. But the ardent purpose of our lives is to reach its source. To reach its head. To reach its origin. And that is Jesus Christ. Life is not about drifting. Drifting down the river of life will lead to hell. Life is about pursuing its source, that which is going to bring true blessedness, true life, true hope, true joy, true meaning, true delight. And so what we're going to see this morning from our text in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 is a warning. Don't neglect this superior salvation. Don't miss it. Don't ignore it. Don't lose sight of it. Don't drift away from it. Do not neglect this superior salvation. May God's Word safeguard us. May it warn us and may it confirm its truth to us this morning as we read. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, According to his will. Now, this is the first of five warning passages that Hebrews gives us. And it implores us not to drift away from this superior salvation. It actually admonishes us in three ways in this text. It does so first by Challenging us to safeguard this great salvation. Second, it warns us not to neglect this great salvation. And third, it gives confirmation of this great salvation. And so first, we are called to safeguard this great salvation. Now this great salvation, we want to start right there. You see, chapter 1 gave us a glimpse of the great salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have received the greatest word, the most precious truth, the dearest and deepest, the best news that we could possibly receive in Jesus Christ. I mean, far better than hearing that you won an award or you won the lottery or that your team was victorious. And and I realize for Cubs fans, that's a big deal because that's not going to happen for like another hundred years right? I mean, far better than receiving great news like she said I do, or that you're expecting a baby, or that something that you have hoped for your entire life has now been fulfilled. Far greater, far better than than any of that is the good news of our great salvation in Christ. God has spoken by his word. And because God has spoken to us by His Son, we have come to understand more of who this Son is. We've been able to catch a glimpse of His glorious nature. We've been able to stand in awe of His great work that He created us. And not only that, He upholds the universe, including you and me, by the word of His power, We saw that as our Redeemer, He has made purification for sins, and He's now reconciling all things to Himself, either through salvation or through judgment. We stood in awe of that. It helps us to see His glory and to rest in it. And we also saw His exalted status, that the one and only Son of God sits enthroned over all, over all things until all His enemies are defeated. Friends, that's big. That's really, really big. That's far bigger than you or me, right? And that is ours in Christ. Chapter 1 told us about who Jesus is and about what he has done. It's all about the supremacy of Christ, and it has said nothing. It's not given a single word to anything about you and what you do, who you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to do. It's all about him. Our great salvation is all about him, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Christ alone is our salvation, and what a great salvation. And so in light of this, the author of Hebrews begins verse 1 by saying, therefore. Now, just word to the wise, whenever you're reading scripture and you see the word therefore, you need to zero in, okay? because it's telling you something important. It's drawing an inference, a conclusion. You need to get this, right? It says, therefore, in light of all of that stuff, because God has spoken to us by his son, revealed who he is and what he has done, how he is superior to all else, because we have received this great salvation, this precious word, we must do something. Now, let me just ask you this. What do you do when you receive a precious gift? What do you do when somebody hands you a priceless treasure? How do you treat it? How do you respond to it? You don't leave it outside in the rain next to the garbage to be picked up by the trash collector, do you? No, you secure it. You protect it. You safeguard it. You treat it according to its worth. You display its glory in a way that befits its value. And so, in light of these precious truths that we have received in chapter one, he says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. He says, it is necessary. It is absolutely and exceedingly necessary for you to turn your mind, for you to give heed to, for you to pay attention to an even greater degree than you already have been to what you have heard. Right, Pay even closer attention. You've heard it. You're not done. There's more to see. There's more to behold. There's more to hear. Pay closer attention. You think you've arrived? You haven't. You think you've got this whole thing figured out? You don't, right? You've been a Christian for, for decades? Doesn't matter. You still turn your mind to. You're a pastor? Well, you may have a master of divinity, but you have not mastered the divine. And so look carefully. It is necessary That you pay even greater attention to what you have already heard. It does not matter how long you have been a Christian. It does not matter how mature you think that you are. The truth is we never move beyond the gospel. We only go deeper and further in to see it for what it is. To see it more clearly in all its magnificence and all of its glory. There's not a time when you can put the truth of God's Word behind you or assume that you've mastered it and can move on to bigger and better things. It doesn't give us liberty either to be bored with it. As if to say, you know what, that doesn't matter. I, it's, meh, it's whatever. It's all, all that stuff, you know, that we've talked about. I, I wonder, have you found it boring? The last three weeks, we've unpacked a lot of stuff. We, we've looked at a lot of Bible. We've looked at a lot of theology. We've looked at a, a whole bunch at who Jesus is and what he has done, what his sonship actually means. And there hasn't been a whole lot to do with us. And I just wonder if you found it boring. Why can't you just talk more about us? Why, why can't you just tell antidotes or amusing little stories to help us to feel good about ourselves, to keep it lively so I'm not falling asleep over here? Friends, just get honest with yourself. I mean, do you find this whole thing boring? You find the whole Christianity, like, it's boring. The Bible is boring, right? Gathering together as a church is boring. Scripture, boring. Jesus, boring, right? Christian life is boring. A lot of times we treat it like it's boring. Well, friends even that which is of immeasurable worth can still be viewed as boring. I mean, gold is worth a lot, right? What is gold but a soft, glimmery metal? I mean, what a pile of junk. I mean, I'm not going to build a house with gold, right? The whole thing will fall over, right? We don't build our skysc- skyscrapers out of gold. It can't hold it. It's too soft. It's just shiny, A diamond, right? Shiny hard rock. Whoop-de-doo, right? I hand that to Cole. You know what he's going to do? He's going to start treating it like a baseball, right? Just that's what's going to happen. But it doesn't mean it's not worth anything. And if the solution to finding the preciousness of a diamond is to look closer, then how much more the sun? So the first commandment, the command that's given here in the after entire chapter of what you may consider to be dry, boring biblical theology about the Son, is to look closer, to pay closer attention, to listen with greater care to that which you have already heard, that which is most precious, the word that God has spoken to us by His Son. It says, listen closely to what we have heard. Listen to it, because I just wonder what what do you spend your time listening to? We're all listening to something, right? What is it, right? What speaks loudest in your ears and to your heart? It's got to be something. And what do you, what provision do you make in order to listen to it, right? If your your goal is is. Degree. If your goal is career, right, like you you invest yourself in in your education, you hear a lot of voices speaking into that, right? If if your goal is is sort of like having having a model home, right, better better living, better you know, home and garden, whatever that might be, it might be just like what you listen to all the time, right? What are you listening to? And, and if you're listening to it, what, what provisions do you make in order to listen to it? Because we all do, right? Like if you want to listen to music, what do you do? You, you make sure that you have access to the album, right? You put on the headphones, you crank it way up to drown all the other noises out, right? If you're over at my house and you want to watch the news, you have to turn the TV up as loud as it can possibly go, and then you keep shushing the kids, That's what you have to do to listen to the news. But that's, you make a concerted effort in order to listen to something. You make provisions. You make plans. You buy things. You go places. You remove distractions. And even though we've heard this message before, we still need to listen. We still need to pay even greater attention to what we have heard. It is necessary, absolutely and exceedingly necessary, that we continue to turn our eyes and our ears back to what we have already heard. Chet, I've heard this before. I know that's the point. It's necessary. And it's interesting that as you read through Scripture, if you had to summarize the primary command that we are given, what we are to do, it's not labor for this, do this, be like this, it's listen, it's watch, it's see, behold. That is the primary command that God gives us throughout all the pages of Scripture and certainly here in this text. The whole chapter first chapter was given so that we could see that this yoke that he gives is easy and the burden is light. Because this great salvation that is given by the author, the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer of all things is not ours by decision or by duty, but by continually listening to him. By contemplating Jesus by considering Jesus, by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Everything else in the Christian life flows out of this. Pay closer attention to Jesus. And the author says that it is necessary that we pay even greater attention to Jesus lest we drift away from it. Friends, we can drift away from Jesus. This wasn't written to unbelievers. Like, oh yeah, of course, they're, you know, they're kind of around the church, but they're not the church, and so they're the ones hearing it, and they're the ones drifting away from Jesus, but not us. No, because look at what the author says. He includes himself in the call. He says, we must, and it's not the royal we, like, you know, where I say we, but I mean you. Like, we need to do this, but I really mean George. Yeah. He's saying we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And who's he writing to? He's writing to believers who want to obey God and honor Him in their worship, though the suffering that they are experiencing for Christ is causing them to want to play it safe. Okay? And so what they're trying to do is adjust back to old forms, old rituals, old traditions, Judaism. And and they're doing that because... That's accepted by the culture that's hostile to Jesus, right? So they're acquiescing to the culture that's hostile to Jesus. They're not outright denying Jesus in any way, but they are in danger of drifting away from him. Even that serves as a warning to us. Look, you can call yourself a Christian and you can lean heavily in on legalism, on on laws, on rules, on rituals, on practices, and that's like what you major on, and still be drifting away from Jesus. And on the other end, you could be acquiescing to culture because you want to play it safe and you just kind of want to be an anonymous Christian and not people really know what you're all about, right? Kind of lean in the other way and still be drifting from Jesus. You see, either end we can drift away from Jesus. Legalism or license, drifting from Jesus. And So without constant watchfulness, without proper anchorage, it is easy for a ship to drift off course. And we too can be easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes and find that we have drifted away from Jesus. And that's the thing about drifting. It's not it's not like an immediate reversal, right? It's not like transportation that like, oh, so oh, wait, how do I? like it's this steady, slow, subtle, sometimes imperceptible drift away from Jesus to these other things. Friends, we have to pay closer attention to stay on course toward our salvation in Christ. When Hebrews refers to salvation, it's, it's referring ultimately to the future sense. When the last days we are meet with him face to face, he's talking more about the, the salvation that we still yet to receive. And so even though, there, like I said before, there's that overlap in ages, right? He's already made purification for sins, done deal. There's still more to come. So don't drift away from it. And this is big, guys. This has affected, is affecting, will affect this church, right? There are many who think that you can drift away from God's Word and not drift away from God. There are many who would say that you can drift away from sound doctrine, from sound teaching, from orthodoxy, and not drift away from God. There are, there are many who say that you can kind of drift off into cultural relevance and to, to treat uh, moral normativity of the day as, as okay and not drift away from God. There are those who can exchange true heart worship of Jesus, a love for Jesus for just going through the motions and not drift away from God. This passage says the opposite. You drift away from the Word of God, you drift away from God. You drift away from sound teaching, you drift away from God. You drift away from sound living, sound worship, sound practice, you drift away from God. You forget who He is what He has done, and you start making it about something else. Friends, what do you do then if you drift off course? You just be like, well, I'm already in this direction. I just keep going. See where it takes me. No. You stay vigilant. You stay true. You, you keep the embers of your heart burning. You anchor your soul in truth. You safeguard that which is most precious. You don't wait until one day you wake up and you realize that you've blown so far off course that you have no idea where you are the author of Hebrews is admonishing us to do the proactive thing here, right? To do it before it's an issue, to pay even closer attention to what we have already heard so that we don't drift away from it. And so how do we do that? Well, we go back to chapter one, right? We go back and we look even closer at who he is and what he's done, we anchor our souls with the Word of God, with, with deep theology of the person and work of Jesus. We, we strive to worship Him in spirit and in truth, not just going through the motions, not living one day on Sunday morning, but a different way on Friday night. Friends, this is why we do what we do, right? This is why we gather on Sunday mornings. This is why I preach long expositional sermons This is why, even during community groups, we we unpack the sermon in, in application. This is why we have our own children's catechism. This is why we focus on family discipleship. This is why we sing deep theological songs. This is why we have life transformation groups, because we want to safeguard this great salvation lest we drift away from it. We want to pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't find ourselves out there lost. The Word of God, sound doctrine, sound worship, sound living, sound teaching like we're receiving here from Hebrews is absolutely necessary if we are going to safeguard this great salvation. So Hebrews urges us to safeguard this great salvation, but it also warns us. In verses 2 and 3, it implores us, second, be warned against neglecting this great salvation. Verse 2 continues with an argument from lesser to greater. You get what I mean when I say lesser to greater? Like, okay, if, if this feather that I drop falls to the ground due to gravity, well, then certainly this big boulder will drop to the ground due to gravity, right? You get boulder greater than feather. Okay, as long as you get that, right? So it says here, For since the message, or better the word, declared by angels proved to be reliable, And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how then will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The answer, we won't. Now, when it says declared by angels, proven reliable, every sin was judged, it's talking about the Old Testament. How do we know that? Well, you know, God... the the ways that God spoke to our fathers long ago at many times and in many ways by the prophets, we notice that all of these verbs here are past tense, right? The angels had declared, right? And we've already talked about this. The Hebrews believed in Old Testament passages support that angels mediated God's word to the prophets. You've got the word proved certain and reliable. God has already shown his word to be true, that he's faithful, that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Right? You get the whole Old Testament, this entire unpacking of, of century after century after century to know that God's Word is reliable. And every transgression or disobedience to God's law had already received a just retribution. Right? You ever read about the, the exile? We have more than enough evidence in the Old Testament to know that God will justly judge those who sin against Him. His holiness and His righteousness demand it. In fact, His love even demands that He judge sin. And so even from the Old Testament, we have enough to know that this is God's heavenly Word delivered by angels, that it is certain and true, that it is proven reliable for all of our fathers before us and that all have been and will be held accountable to it. Every transgression, every disobedience against God's Word has and will receive a just retribution. You can learn all of that from the Old Testament. And if that is true of the Old Covenant, then it will certainly be true for the New Covenant. All right? What he's asking here is not a sincere question, right? Like, okay, I'm just going to put it out there for a vote. What do you think's going to happen to us? Will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I'm just kind of curious, right? Right, popular poll says, no, it's a rhetorical question, right? He's saying, if you neglect such a great salvation, you will not escape, right? If you neglect, if you don't give heed to, if you're unconcerned about, if you pay no attention to, if you treat it lightly or of little significance, we will not escape an even greater just retribution. Does that sound harsh to you? Because here's what we do, right? We look at this as like, man, God's threatening to beat us up again. He's threatening to punish us. He's threatening to, you know, cast us into hell for all eternity. That's not real fair. I mean, well, all, all we did was neglect this great salvation. Just, man, it's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, I just I missed the mark a little bit, but it's really not that bad. Well, guys, this is not like neglecting the dandelions in your yard. Like, oh, man, you know, I neglected to put, you know, the proper, you know, chemicals or whatever on my yard early enough to avoid dandelions, and now I have dandelions in my yard. I'm like, that's, that's too bad. I, he's like, still doesn't mean I don't care about having a nice yard and with no dandelions. But that's not what he's referring to here. Think of it like this. If you were imprisoned, rightly and justly imprisoned because you had rebelled against a king, and that king comes to you and he says, I'm willing to receive you back into my kingdom. but Here's what I want you to do. I want you to meet me at this time, right here at this gate, and I will pay the ransom to deliver you from this prison. You can come and rejoin, be received back into my kingdom. You know you're guilty, and you know you're not getting out, and this king is the only hope of you getting out. What would you do? What effort would you take to make sure that you were there at that gate at that time for the king to release you from that prison? My guess is you would stop at nothing, right? You'd make sure you're, you're there. You're just I'm going to camp out here. I'll be right here when you get back. I'm not leaving, right? Skip my meals. I, I don't care. I'll be right here. But if you wandered off and lost track of time, didn't happen to show when the king arrived again, would it not be just for the king to leave you in your punishment? And even more than that, add to the sentence. It would be. Now that is the story of the Old Testament. Imagine that's the story of the Old Testament. The story of the New Testament goes one step further. See, because not only does the king show up, the king that you've sinned against, that you've rebelled against, you're in prison because you sinned against this king and you deserve to be there. This king shows up and he opens the gate. Takes his signet ring off of his finger and he puts it on your hand. He wraps his royal robe around you. He hands you a chest full of treasure and says, this is the ransom to pay for your sin. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to meet me at my great hall at this time, later today. And so you go and you wander through the streets and the ring accidentally slips off your finger. Perhaps you go and you catch up with old friends that you haven't seen in a while. You get involved in old activities and the robe gets tattered and torn. You start spending all of that ransom on trinkets until you have nothing left but an empty chest. And you were having so much fun that you lost track of time and you didn't show up in the great hall when he told you to be there. Well, Friends, if that's the case, how much more? Will that just retribution be? That is how, I mean, how would you treat someone who neglects so great a salvation? I mean, if you found, just practically in your life, if you found that, that your kids had taken a precious heirloom that your grandmother had given you, and they were playing with it somewhere, and they lost track of it. They have no idea where it is. And so you search and search and search, and you find it outside in the dirt, all broken. I mean, how would you respond? Like, how would you respond to the heirloom? And how would you respond to your kids? Right? Well, this great salvation is a far more valuable than any heirloom. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God gave that which is most precious to him. That which you you can't even begin to put a dollar amount on, his one and only son. And his son, though of no fault of his own, though he had done nothing wrong, he, he had sinned against his father in any way, obeyed his father perfectly and laid down his life as a willing sacrifice to pay for our sin right, the sin that we all deserve, the ransom that we deserve to pay. And he rose again to give us life, to reconcile us to God, to adopt us into God's family as God's children, to give us eternal glory, right, and a heavenly inheritance that is ours forever in him. God gave that which is most precious to him and to us. So how could we neglect such a great salvation? This message that we've heard and that we're now hearing is something that we're now accountable to. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for decades and you've heard this so many times, I mean, you can't even begin to count, or you're here and this is the first time you've ever heard it. In hearing, we're now accountable to it. The gospel, as does Hebrews, offers both assurance and admonition. Right? This is our security. This is our hope. This is what ultimately is going to lead to our perseverance. God elects. God adopts. God redeems. God saves. God perseveres to the end. God will complete His work that he began in the day of Christ, right? And admonition, warning. And it sees no contradiction between them. A word of grace and truth and warning given to us. When we understand the gospel rightly, when we understand Hebrews rightly, when we understand these warnings rightly, we see that there's no contradiction between them. I mean, that's why chapter one is all about the supremacy of Christ. How he is God who made and sustains all there is. He is Lord over all. He is supreme over all else talks about how he made purification for sin past tense. And then chapter 2 turns around and it warns us by neglecting about neglecting such a great salvation. And then a few verses later, it's going to reassure us again that Christ has tasted death for everyone, that he will bring many sons to glory, that he is our sanctifier, that he is a merciful and faithful high priest who is able to help us in our temptation. And then it's going to turn around in chapter 3 and warn us all over again. And it keeps doing that. Assurance and admonition, assurance and admonition, assurance and admonition. Because there's no contradiction between them. You see, these warnings, if we understand them rightly, are God's means of our salvation. That's the purpose of the warnings that we see, not just in Hebrews, but throughout all the scripture. We get these warnings that we see them, we're not just meant to like, You know, like, freak out, that God's mad at me. But that God gives us the warning as a means to save us, to redeem us. If we will listen, if we'll heed the warning. Right? This is written to believers. though, Though, yeah, unbelievers may have been present to hear this kind of warning. And this is a real consequence, not a hypothetical one. It's not like God's saying, well, you know, you can't really, you can't really neglect this great salvation. You can't really, you know, fail and, and then not escape. This is just hypothetical. If it were possible for you to neglect this salvation, right, and not escape from it, then that would be the case. But, but this is not hypothetical. This is real. Now, wait a minute, Chet, and then. Are you saying that a believer can lose their salvation? No, I am not. Is this passage talking simply then about a loss of rewards? Like you can make it into heaven by the skin of your teeth? You know, like, well, the salvation is secure in Christ, but all of the goodies that come along with it, you can lose if you neglect this great salvation. No, that's not what I mean either. And nor is this a test of the genuineness of our faith. Like, okay, God gives us the warning, and then we're going to turn around and look back. Oh, man, was was I a believer or not? I don't know. Maybe I'm not a believer. Because the whole focus is forward on the ultimate goal, the final realization of that salvation. It's future. It's not introspective or retrospective. No, the purpose is to be a means of our salvation. When you come to warnings, you got to ask why were the warnings given? Not just who they were given to, but why were they given? If you're about to drink a cup of poison and I run in and I say, don't drink that cup, it's poison. Right? That That warning is the means of your salvation, unless, you know, you're a fool and I forget you, you know. Now, that that warning is the means through which you are saved. God will preserve his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And these warnings are means of our salvation. Charles Spurgeon describes it this way. So God says, My child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. You see, the warning leads the believer to greater dependence upon God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed, and he stands as far away from that great gulf, because he knows that if he were to fall in it, there would be no salvation for him, but if he runs to his father, he is safe. That's what warnings are meant to do. And guys, when you begin to see warnings that way, it changes the way that you view them. changes the way you read Scripture. No, no longer are they this means of, of trepidation like God's against me, but you actually see God gave the warning because he's for me. Every time God calls you to repent and believe, it's because he's for you, not against you. Every time he says, come unto me, It's not because he said, I'm going to make you suffer and you're just going to have to give up all of this great stuff for kind of blah stuff. He knows what's best for you. He knows what is for your eternal good, your eternal joy, your eternal glory. And so when God calls us to something, he's calling us to what is for our best, not because he's a tyrant, not because he's just, you know, just arbitrary in what he considers to be good and evil, and why can't we just accept what the culture buys into? God's a meanie because he says, I can't, I can't eat candy all day. No, God intends to use this warning to be a means of drawing us to greater dependence to greater joy, to greater wonder, to greater hope, to greater fear, and to greater love for our great Savior. So we safeguard this salvation and we're warned against neglecting this salvation. And third, it calls us to receive the confirmation of this great salvation. God has not just spoken words and then just kind of plop them down in front of us to just deal with. Like, one day, you know, we're walking along innocently enough, and then we trip over a scroll, then we open it up, and it's God's law, and we're like, okay, what are we supposed to do with that? God doesn't leave himself without a witness. God speaks in such a way that he confirms the truthfulness and the certainty of his word. He has left us with many witnesses to confirm it is true. In the second half of verse 3 through the end of verse 4, we see just a few examples of it, right? It was declared first by this great salvation, was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will, I'm amazed by how much this sounds like Acts. This is one of the arguments for why people think maybe Luke wrote Acts, or Luke wrote Hebrews, but it's a very similar in statement and it's certainly very true of the book of the whole, as a whole, that throughout the book of Acts, we see, well, it's declared first by the angels, was attested to by those who, who taught us, who, who preached the gospel to us. God did all of these signs and wonders and, and miracles for us to see, and he distributed gifts to the church. Right? So that we could have this confirmation that God is confirming, he's validating his word. And so this great salvation was declared first by the Lord. And this is certainly in reference to Jesus' earthly ministry. His life and his teaching bore witness to this great salvation. I mean, That was the purpose for which he came. But as we saw in the first verse and a half of chapter 1, he's still declaring. He's still speaking. That God has spoken to us by His Son. We're still part of these last days. He's still speaking in the same way. Telling us of the greatness. Confirming the greatness of this salvation. It was attested to us also by those who heard. First and foremost, the apostles, prophets who gave the word of God to us. But also by the witness of the church itself. We don't know who these Hebrews heard the gospel from. We don't know whether it was apostle. Perhaps it was someone else, right? We don't know, but nevertheless, they heard it. It was attested to them by those who heard. And we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, That God promises that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and that we will be His witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God's still working in that same way, equipping, empowering His church by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Christ to those who would hear. They too confirm this great salvation. You confirm this great salvation when you tell others about Jesus. And while all that was going on, God himself was also bearing witness by signs and wonders and various miracles to validate the truth and power of the gospel. But even more than that, he gave spiritual gifts to the church according to his will, not ours. Now, not so that we could be amazed by by the miraculous, but so that we would be equipped for the work of ministry. Unfortunately, there are so many wrong ideas about the spiritual gifts and what they're for. So many people are removed from the church that we can't see the extraordinary blessing of God's grace through everyday acts of love and service as we live together. Among the body of Christ, we are too preoccupied, we're too busy, or we just don't get close enough to see the church and to see it in such a way that we can see God working through it, confirming just how great this salvation is. But make no mistake, even in the church, even in this church right here, God has confirmed this great salvation. This passage says nothing about God ordained history that also bears witness and confirms it as well. But again, I got to ask you, like, you know, how do you explain the fact that Jesus died badly? I'm like, he didn't die of old age. He didn't just kind of slip off into the wilderness and sort of pass quietly in his sleep. He died horribly. And yet, he is the most popular person that has ever or will ever exist, right? More people worship Jesus throughout the world and throughout the history of mankind than anything else far and away. How do you explain that? And not only did Jesus die horribly, but his followers did as well. And none of them ever said, are we just kidding? We made it all up even as they were dying. How do you explain that? How do you even explain the weird stuff that like how we take the Lord's name in vain? You notice that we never take anyone else's name in vain? Like if I'm walking through my house in the dark and I stub my toe, I don't go, Michael Jordan, Lady Gaga, George Washington, I hate you. Right? But we do this weird thing about taking Jesus' name in vain when we stub our toes. what's with that? How do you explain the fact that, hey, we, we tell the date by Jesus, right? Even if you've adopted the whole BCECE thing, I mean, guess what divides the middle? You can change the terminology. You can't change the, the implication. You can't change the reality. We mark our years by Jesus, I mean, to seriously answer those kinds of questions, you have to do more than that old, tired, well, you know, he was a good man, he was a good teacher, he was a good philosopher, right? Because you can't actually say that and mean it. Jesus said he was the son of God. Jesus said that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. So you can't say that he's a good teacher, right? He's a good man, he's he's a good philosopher. After he said that, and mean it, right? Because he's got to be a madman or it's got to be right. There's just no in between. So if you're going to be intenti- you know, intellectually honest with yourself, you can't call him a good teacher or a good philosopher. You got to do more. And so the warning here that's given to the church is also given to you. To pay closer attention to who he is. No, God has given confirmation of our hope. But the way forward from skepticism and doubt to salvation is not for you to go through the motions, practice certain deeds, try to be something that you're not. The solution is to listen. To pay closer attention to. See him, to perceive, to embrace the greatness and the glory of this good news that God himself has confirmed. The real question for us today is, what are you looking to for salvation? See, the reality is we're all looking to something as great. We're all looking to something to be our hope, to be our identity, to be that which we take comfort in That which can rescue us from our greatest fears, right? If your greatest fear is, say, cancer, medicine may be your salvation, right? If your greatest fear is poverty, money is your greatest security, right? What are you looking to for salvation? What do you find to be greatest, The reason why we drift, the reason why we we fail to pay attention to or neglect such a great salvation is because we either don't think that it's great or we don't think there's any salvation in it. It's one of the two. Either there are things that are better, something better than Jesus, right? Something better than the eternal Son of God. Or. There's no hope in it. There's no salvation in it. And when we believe that, when we fall into that kind of thinking, we drift, we neglect, we move away. And we can find identity, we can find value, we can find salvation, we can find greatness in all sorts of things. It may be sex, it may be entertainment, it may be success. It may be security, it may be family, it may be food. I mean, any number of things we can look to and see it as great and better than Jesus. But When something else is better than this, when when we make, we will make light of or ignore the warnings, we will minimize them or attempt to reinterpret the truth that God himself has confirmed. And in the end, what happens is that Jesus becomes little more than a mediocre help to us, but he's far from being seen as such a great salvation. Guys, you've got to ask yourself that question. How do I really view Jesus? A mediocre help? Or do I really see him as such a great salvation? So listen, pay attention to, closer attention to this great salvation that we've been given. God has confirmed it so that you might receive it. He's warned us of the dangers of neglecting our only hope, and he admonishes us to safeguard that which is most precious to us for our eternal good, for our eternal souls. And so he calls us, calls you and me, every single one of us, Don't neglect this superior salvation. Let's pray.